Today's call to worship is in 1 Corinthians, um, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. In uh, your pew Bible, it's going to be found on page uh, 1061. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy that can, that, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Today's Old Testament reading is from Amos 5, verses 5 through 15. In your pew Bible, you can find it on page 845. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey, do not journey to Bathsheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pelidians and Orion, he who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With the blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Today's New Testament reading is found in James 2, 1 through 13, which is found on page 1,119 in your pew Bibles. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, God has not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? 
If you keep the royal law found in scripture, love thy neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as the lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There are a lot of complex things going on in the text that were just read for us today. Any one of them could be their own sermon or short series of sermons. But today I want to connect a couple of ideas for you as it's a communion Sabbath. Today I want to help you tie a couple of things together in your hearts and in your heads that we might find a new way to be in the world celebrating the goodness of God and the reign of God among us and building our lives after the story of Jesus Christ as embedded in the story of God and humanity. When we talk about rich and poor, we talk not only about a biblical theme, we talk about a political theme. It's one in which we're spending a lot of time on radio, television, newspaper, and conversation. For some, it's the Affordable Health Care Act. For some, it's Obamacare. Politicized, you see, same thing. For some, it's entitlement programs. For some, it's a way of caring for the nation's poor. Call it what you will. There's a split in this country and in our minds and even in our midst when we talk about rich and poor. I want to try to avoid the political in the larger GOP versus uh, Democrat kind of world. But I would like to talk about the political in terms of implications for the way in which we think and live as Christians. You see, what I want to start out by saying is being clear that intrinsically, the poor have nothing to recommend them above the rich. There's no virtue, per se, in poverty. There is no virtue, per se, in poverty. So when we talk about the poor, we're not talking about a group that God favors because they're poor. We're not talking about a group that has superior moral claims to make about living than the middle class or the wealthy. To be clear, people are people. And we're not talking necessarily about those who have, through their own poor choices, habits, addictions, and otherwise, found themselves in a position of great disadvantage. We're not even necessarily talking about the extremely mentally ill individuals we might encounter on the streets in one of our cities. What we need to hear and understand is that of our population in the world today, fully one billion people in the world today live on one dollar U.S. or less a day. One dollar U.S. a day 
or less. Another 1.4 billion people live on less than $2 a day. Where my son Brennan is this year in Malawi, the seventh poorest country on earth, the average laborer earns $1.50 a day and has to make do on this, fam on this, on this uh, amount of money. He and his friend were traumatized recently when they were camping and saw in the reserve people chained to some wood and being dragged out of the forest by guards to a hut. He heard screaming and crying. The women were beaten in the face and a man was taken into the hut and beaten so badly that he emerged screaming and crying. They were poachers. Now, poaching is a serious crime. I'm not advocating for poaching. And I'm not trying to point to the Malawian, Malawian militia or the guards of that particular national park and saying that they necessarily had a lot of options given the fact that the jails are often full and the very poor can't afford to pay fines. They have what they call civil justice. And so these people were beaten for taking wood from this protected area because these trees are endangered. And they're endangered because people take them for wood. Now, we're not only talking about endangered woods in terms of selling them, perhaps. That might be a different matter, and that may be what these people were guilty of. They might be harvesting rare, world, rare woods for the first world market, selling them illegally and trying to get big dollars for them, kind of like the ivory trade. We might want to see those kinds of individuals punished, but the chances are greater that they were collecting wood because they need firewood to cook in their impoverished area. You realize, of course, that there, maybe you don't, I'll tell the story, there are women, because it's a woman's job to get water in the Middle East, Africa, various parts of the world, who have to walk three miles or more to get water. So they are not protected in these journeys. Very often in parts of the world, these women who go to collect water for their families are raped in the process of going to collect that water. Can you imagine for a minute the social implications of all of this trauma and difficulty? You see, we live in such a different world structurally. We live in such a different world financially that we can't begin to comprehend. These people aren't lazy. They aren't stupid for sure. How many of you could live on a dollar a day? I'm not smart enough to live on a dollar a day. I am not. I could not do it. They're ingenious. They're survivors. They're tough. But they have no voice, no way of fighting back, no way of making systemic change, no way of living differently than they're living. How differently could you live if you had to hike? three to five miles for water every day? How differently could you live if you had to scrounge for firewood and had no electricity and no fuel? How would life be for you if you didn't have any transportation, not even a bicycle? How differently could you live? The insight that was brought to my attention through the work of a fellow named Zach Plantick was this that I want to share with you, and then we're going to pull our scriptures in and help us kind of get a grip on what we're talking about. Jesus said, if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. But there's another side to this. You see, if Jesus is truly represented in the sea of humanity, 
If Jesus is present in the lives of every person, if Jesus' face is what we're supposed to see in those that we encounter in life, and not just the rich or the middle class or the educated or the sophisticated or the easy to be around, if Jesus' face is to be seen in the ignorant and the disadvantaged, if Jesus' face is to be seen in the face of the poor, then when we ignore the poor, despise the poor, create laws that disadvantage the poor, allow business practices that hurt the poor, we have done it unto him. When we have despised the poor, we have despised Jesus. Now, I hope you heard me earlier. I said intrinsically, human to human, There is no moral or other merit, no intrinsic advantage to poverty. It's a great disadvantage. God doesn't automatically like someone who's poor more than someone who's not so poor or perhaps toward middle class or more educated or less educated or even rich. But the power belongs to those who have. And this is the sort of structural thing that the prophets are talking about. The prophets are always talking about justice and mercy and love. And that message gets carried forward in John the Baptist. And that message gets carried forward in Jesus' words. And that message gets carried forward in the early church. That message gets carried forward even to this day. You see, Jesus did something remarkable in the upper room. He entered the world of dolos. He entered the world of servanthood. You see, as they were preparing for the Passover, among the preparations the disciples were supposed to have made was for a goyim. They had the room. They had set up the food. Passover was scheduled to happen. There were all kinds of things that had been worked out, but a servant had not been arranged. Now, a goyim is a non-Jewish person who would be able to work in one of these Sabbath situations. They were already lost, so it didn't matter if they served. It didn't matter if they broke the law in this way. And so a goyim, a servant, would need to be present, and none is to be found. And the disciples look around at each other and say, well, I guess we messed up on that one. But not one of them steps forward to play the role of servant. Not one of them will enter this world of the perceived lower status, of the perceived disadvantage. Now, if you look at the role, I mean, if you look at the lives of the disciples, not all of them were particularly elevated folks. Some of them were in despised classes, such as tax collector. And I know we all love our friends at the IRS, right? The tax collectors, they were in parts and regions of Israel that were looked down on as more boisterous or perhaps less literate. They were fishermen. Many of them were common people. And even in that very ordinary place, that very non-powerful kind of place, there could be found no one willing to identify with the poor, with the slave 
with the one who would serve. And Jesus says, I want to teach you something. And he takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, we make this usually, when we think about it, an extension of the condescension of God. God in highest heaven decides to become one of us, born of a virgin, raised among us, teaching us, showing the love of the Father, revealing the Father to us. We make communion an extension of that. He further humiliates himself, taking on the role even of a servant. And we ask ourselves, place a very high demand on ourselves to model that in this service, washing one another's feet as he washed the disciples' feet and therefore commanded us to do. But the true essence of this goes beyond washing one another's feet, even though that's symbolic of what it will entail. This is the truly universal moment of joining the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. This is the moment in which there can be no distinguishing between rich or poor, male or female, slave or free. This is the moment when we, on bended knee, serve another as Jesus, Lord of the universe, took on the role of goyim, slave, servant, outcast, non-Jew, humbled servant. This is the moment. We'll be breaking shortly for communion. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out a few things in our texts just before we did that. You'll notice in the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, one very famous at every wedding, we read the love chapter. It makes it very clear that if we are the most talented linguist, capable of speaking eloquently in multiple tongues, if we are gifted with spirit speak, so to speak, or glossolalia and interpretation of tongues, we have that gift If we are, well, it lists them, doesn't it? Name the gift, name the the endowment. Even if we have the gift of prophecy, which is the most sought-after gift and can fathom all mysteries and know everything, have all knowledge, even if we could speak to the future, any of these things we, we could have. But if we don't have love, we have nothing. We have nothing. And here is the truth. We cannot love God or Christ. We cannot truly love Him and despise the poor. We cannot truly love Him and not advocate for the disadvantaged. We cannot truly love Him and fail to do justice and seek justice and love mercy. Let's go to our prophets as they were read for you. Amos, wonderful uh, prose in Amos about the truth 
of the situation of Israel that perpetuates itself even to this day. And somehow I have the wrong bulletin. Okay, here we go. Amos 5, 5 to 15. I won't reread it. It was very eloquently read. But I do want us to get a sense of what this passage is hitting at here. Don't go to the places of worship, it says. Now, I don't know, in in my mind, these are places of ancient worship, places of even prophetic schools, but they also were places, apparently, high places where altars to false gods had been placed. Even these places of worship, whether you take the view that they were originally God's places or whether they were places of heathen worship, either direction you turn, going to these places isn't where we're going to find God. It says, seek the Lord and live. You who turn justice into bitterness, seven, and cast righteousness to the ground, and then it gives a parenthetical referring to Orion and Pleiades. He who is in charge of all of this, the Lord is his name. He will destroy those who hate and despise. Verse 11, you trample on the, on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you won't live in them. And though you've planted lush vineyards, you won't drink their wine. For I know your offenses and how great are your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then God will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. And then perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Sound warning. Stern and harsh. Very direct. Very plain. Justice. Righteousness, mercy, these are the things God loves and wants to see. In the passage in James, we bring the lesson to the New Testament church. I think we're sophisticated enough to avoid this in many cases, but then again, I wonder, maybe not. The text describes a beautifully dressed person, clean and regal, gorgeous clothes, good jewelry, coming into a church or synagogue and being immediately noticed and immediately deferred to. We're programmed to do this, aren't we? We are deferent by programming, yes? Oh, they're asleep. Okay, time to break for foot washing. I'll get there in just a second. I would like an answer. Are we not programmed to be deferent? Yes. We are much more likely to kick somebody who's down than to try to goad somebody who's up. We're much more likely to be polite to somebody in power than we are, even if we don't like them, than we are to be polite to somebody who is entreating us. Is this not not the case? We're programmed to be different. And Jesus says, through James, James says in the early church here, you see someone come into the church or synagogue to worship 
and they are immaculate and impeccable and desirable, and we treat them very favorably. But when someone comes in who's broken, disadvantaged, poor, maybe addicted, maybe some of the categories that are much harder to, to relate to or be empathetic to, maybe crazy, what does it mean when we say sit on the ground over there or take a seat in the back? Yes, I said take a seat in the back. I would love it if all of you would move up. That would be just... These, by the way, are the truly blessed and advantaged <laughs> seats. This is the come ye blessed of my Father and receive the kingdom prepared for you. Right here, seats. So just, just wanted to throw that out for all of you. Um, I'm working on my own self while I'm preaching this uh, sermon. Jesus says through James, he says, what, what are you doing when you make this differentiation? What does that say? about me. James says in 4, have you not discriminated and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? You remember that passage in Luke? Blessed are the poor, Luke 7, period. That's what it says. In Matthew, we have that wonderful addition to this phrase, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a little different in Matthew than in Luke. In the Lucan, it's, it's just blessed are the poor. Has God not chosen them to inherit the world, to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom you promised those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. And then he argues about, is it not those who are rich who are exploiting you? If you really kept the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor at yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreaker. You see, when Jesus knelt down, he declared something very powerful. He said, I will cast my lot with the poor, with the servant, with the disadvantaged. I will serve all. If we're to build a life patterned after the life of Jesus, we too will serve all. At this time, I would like to invite us to break according to the stations that have been prepared. We have a place for women to wash the feet of women, men to wash the feet of men, and for family. Uh, units to serve one another as well. These are marked out on the breezeway. Let's take 15 minutes or so, 10 minutes if we can do it, and uh, reconvene here as soon as possible for our communion element service. Thank you so much. Welcome to the table. Thank you for staying by for this portion of our service. We will uh, enter a very sacred space and time. The way things are going to work this morning is that you will be dismissed from the back row coming forward to the front rows. I'm asking that you go down the center aisle and fan out each according to your respective sides to the elder on my left and my right. Get the elements and return to your seats quietly. Um, if you choose not to take the elements today, that is fine. Just let the elder know and you will receive a blessing.
Richard Guy this morning has our prayer for the bread. Peter Thornburg, our prayer for the wine. Let us prepare ourselves in prayer. Dear Lord, when the first Passover meals occurred, there was a sense of urgency, a sense that it was important to follow God's servant with all due speed. And thus, they did not wait for the bread to rise. Today, we come to you with a similar urgency to follow you, to give ourselves to you, to make things right with you. And so here we are today, following you with that sense. Bless us as we break this symbol of our devotion to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord, as we hear the narrative of the story, as you were with the disciples, you did something remarkable. The story tells us you gave thanks for the cup, even though you knew what it symbolized and what you would have to sacrifice and the anguish and torment you would go through. So this morning, Lord, mindful of that, 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 that the wine represents the blood that is given for the forgiveness of our sins, we can't help but say thank you this morning because we know just what it cost. Open up our hearts and our minds as we take each of these symbols to the meaning that they can have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture is brief. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The tradition is that they sang a hymn and left. Let us do so now. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you now and forevermore. Amen.